praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this is one of the best passages in the whole Bible. So anything I say will feel a little bit insufficient. It's okay. It's so awesome. Uh, Romans 5 is a great chapter, and this is a great passage. Um, so let's talk about it. Uh, last November, I was, I, was, I was walking up the stairs of my house, and I look out my window, and I saw my neighbor has this pool. And it looked like they were draining their pool. Like, oh, look, they're draining their pool. It's, it's, it's smart. It's going to freeze. That makes sense to me. Because there was a pool behind the pool. And there's like a little drain. So like the way it all flows, there's this drain right there in the, in the other neighbor's yard. And, and so, all right. So I don't think about it. I just continue. And then it was about four or five days later, my son David comes to me. He says, hey, uh, neighbor Chad wants to talk to you about the water that's coming from your yard into his yard. And so I go outside and Chad's not angry. He just wants, he's just like trying to figure it out. Like, what's, this is weird. Uh, and so we start talking. And so we trace the water up my yard to back behind my shed and the, my house sits like kind of in a valley. So like there's like it slants this way and it slants this way. And so it's coming from up on this hill, like straight behind my house. And so I send David over the fence. We've got privacy fences like all around. So David jumps the fence. Um, and the reason we knew it was coming from there is because you look down and there was like water trickling at the base of the pole, like where the rocks are in my yard. So kind of by my shed, water is just flowing. And so he jumps over and I'm like, investigate Dave, like feel the ground. So he's like crawling around trying to figure it out. And and, like, and I'm like, Dave, do you see where it's coming from? He's like, I don't know. I don't know, Dad. All right. So we, Chad and I think maybe it's a, b- a blown water pipe somewhere. So he's going to call Des Moines Waterworks. And I head around the block to come to this neighbor's house. And two neighbor's yards were wet, so we weren't sure which one. wasn't clear where the water was coming from. And uh, I knew one neighbor. I didn't know the other. And so I, I start at the first house, and I knock on the door of the guy I don't know. And he doesn't answer. And so then I, I walk around the back. So I'm like, I just, I just want to look and see if I can figure this out. And, and I, it doesn't take me that long. I get pretty close. I'm like, mm, I hear something. And so privacy fences are not that private when you're 6'5". And so I like looked over <laughs> and, um, and, and his water spigot is on. It's rushing water in the back of his yard. So much so. So it's just pouring out of the spigot that all along his house, there's like a little mini Grand Canyon. It's like eight inches deep. And, and it's all full of water, so like a river, a little stream, and then it's flowing over the banks, which is the water that's then going down, to, well, it's actually going this way, it's going this way, gets to my house, heads down to my neighbor's house, his pool is not draining, the water spigot's been on. Um, and, I, and I talk about that because it's a little bit like that image of just the, the power of water and the flowing of water, it, it reminds me of what we're talking about in Romans chapter 5. Romans 5 uh, we're getting this place where we've been talking about justification. So justification meaning that, that when Jesus dies on the cross, and what he offers us, what he gives us, is he purifies us with his blood. So like we were sinners and we're made clean. And then we have all these benefits of justification. And so JC talked about that last week at the start of Romans 5, that we have, um, we have peace with God. We, have, we understand the, the grace of God. We have hope. And then in Romans 5.5, 5, it gets to this really cool passage. It says, because we've been justified, it says this hope, this hope we have in Christ will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's given to us. God's love has been poured. And that word poured, the reason I share that, that analogy, it, that story, is it's, it's a constant pouring. Like the word, the, the usage, it's not just like it, it temporary, like it, it like hit you once. God's love hit you once and that was it. It's that God's love, it keeps pouring into you. And so in order so that I would just remember God's love pouring, I just left that spigot on, didn't touch it, constant, no, I didn't. Of course, I, I, David went over the fence, he turned it off. Um, 
That guy probably got a few thousand dollar bill. Um, bummer for him. But um, it is a bummer. It's, it's, that would be aggravating. Anyway, um, John 7, Jesus talks about not just this love pouring into someone's heart, but he talks about the, the, the Holy Spirit. What's the effect of the Holy Spirit? This is what Jesus says. He says, the one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, he will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. He said this about the spirit, that those who believe in Jesus were going to receive, were going to receive the spirit, for the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. In other words, when Jesus ascends, when Jesus goes up to heaven, uh, what's, the, what's the mark that God's going to give us? His Holy Spirit. So he says, Jesus says, the spirit hasn't come yet in that way, the way that you understand I'm talking about it. But when it does, it's going to go deep within you and rivers of water are going to flow out of you. But also it's those rivers that are going to pour the love of God into you. That you're going to understand me differently. Uh, and it's a continual pouring. Uh, it's beautiful. And so we're talking today about God's love. We're talking about that pouring. And, and what he's talking about in Romans 5, 5 is a subjective experience, meaning the way that we, each of us experiences the love of God is going to be a little different, like how we feel it, how we know it, how we understand it. Uh, and so he says, I'm going to give you an ob- ob- objective experience. I'm gonna, I want to explain it not just in the how you feel about it, but actually um, something that we can all understand. And I say subjective because you may be thinking, you're talking about God's love pouring over, but, but like, I don't feel like it pours over all of me. Because when it does pour over all of us, like it gets into each part of us, and then the love of God comes out in how we speak. The love of God comes out in how we feel. And the love of God comes out in how we act. The love of God is so powerful that it overflows into every aspect of our life. But, but you're probably thinking sometimes, or maybe a lot of the time, I don't feel that way about God's love. And, and that's why First Thessalonians 5.19, it says that, that we can quench the Spirit, that we can, we can push it down. It's kind of like jump the fence, turn the spigot down, and it's just like a drip. Like God's still there, but like we don't understand God's love in the way that we could, uh, in the opportunity that we have. So he says, now let's go, let's take this subjective experience, and let's say, let's, let's make it in a way that we can all understand. I want you all to get this. And so what do I hope that you leave with today as Paul describes this? I hope that you leave knowing that you can rejoice in God's incredible and secure love for you. You can leave knowing, rejoicing in God's incredible and secure love for you. And so we're going to look at the proof of God's love and then the security of God's love. These two aspects that are seen in this passage. So the proof of God's love. Uh, God's love is hard for us to understand, hard to compute, hard to um, match, because God's love is different than our love. It's not the same. Uh, we have aspects of our love that are reflections of God's love, but we don't love the same perfect way that God does. So think about people in your life that, have, that you love or love you. Uh, what do those relationships look like? Like it's probably a parent or a sibling, a friend, a spouse. If you're a Christian, it's, it's Jesus. But what does, that, what does that look like? Typically, like you do something where they love you. Like you're like, and then they reciprocate. There's like a back and forth that happens. So you show one another laughter or sympathy. Uh, there's protectiveness, there's generosity, all these, these feelings of love that happen between you and someone else wh- whom you love. And it's demonstrated back and forth. And in a lot of ways, we understand God's love through those things. So we understand joy. We understand protectiveness. We understand, I mean, God desires joy for you. He, he's can, Jesus can sympathize our weaknesses. Uh, he protects us from Satan and his schemes and so many other things that we don't even know about because he's protected us from them. Uh, so God does all these things for us, but God's love is different because it's perfect and it's more. There's a, a chance 
Um, like, we just don't love perfectly. And the reason we don't love perfectly is because sin has entered the world. And so there's probably people in your life who, who you have loved, but they're not around anymore. Or they have loved you, and you're not around anymore. Um, and so this, this is, we're going to see a little bit, how is God's love different than our love? Well, one reason God's love is different is there's nothing that we can do to be worthy of God's love. We can't achieve enough that God would then begin to love us or give enough um, that God would need to love us, like compel him to. For instance, uh, it's not like I have a two-year perfect attendance record at church. Now God loves me. Mm. You know, like I help this nonprofit out a lot. They really appreciate all my, my work and, and I gave financially. It's like, no, that, that's probably not enough for God's love. Um, this, this person was hurting and I, and I came alongside them. It's like, these are all great and God-honoring things, but don't make God love you. They, they, God doesn't need those things. In fact, it's really the opposite with God's love. Like, instead of God looking at all of the, the opportunities, really, we deserve the opposite. Because what this text teaches, and what we understand, even from the first three chapters of Romans, is that we are opposed to God. We stand against God. And so any love that God can or does show to us it's really because of his great nature. We are the opposite of him. We are not good. We are not righteous. We are not godly. We're proud sinners, idolaters. We worship ourselves. We're self-willed. Um, and this is how, how Romans, the first three chapters of Romans, and then even how we're described here up until the moment we're justified. So there's a transition that happens that, that when you put your faith and your hope in Christ, you're made new. Uh, you're different. But up to that point, it's like, well, does God need to love me? Should he love me? How does he love me? We're going to get to that. And love can sometimes be trivialized. Like, what is, what is love? Love can be trivialized to like, ah, it's just emotion. I feel overwhelmingly in love with this person. Uh, love is emotion, but it's much more than emotion. I would say the, the root of love is really giving, like that, that it is sacrificial towards someone else. It makes sacrificial choices like, a mom loves her child, and you see that, and then like, she gets up throughout the night to feed her baby, you know, repeatedly. And doesn't really complain about it, actually finds great joy uh, in doing so. Or a parent who goes to work, and they come home after working eight or ten hours, and they make dinner, and then they got to clean up, and, and then they got to pay the mortgage. Why do they do that? It's because they love. It's because they, they sacrificially love. And the greatest example of this love is in Jesus. God so loved the world that what? He gave. He gives. He continues to give. And so this passage is describing the greatest gift that God could give. God could give lots of things, but what's the most and most wonderful thing he could give? It's his very son. That's what this is going to talk about. Uh, so first, who does God love? And I want you to hear this. I'm talking about the, the, who we were and who you are, so I'm going to talk about who we were and and that's what Paul is talking about here. Like, who, who were we? So this is not once we put our hope in Christ, but who were we leading up to this point? Um, so first it says in John, or sorry, Romans 5, 6, it says, for while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still helpless. So who were we before, before Christ? Who did Jesus come for? Who did Jesus love? The helpless. Um, and really, he's, this is predominantly regarding salvation, we were helpless to save ourselves. We couldn't do enough to save ourselves. And that can grind us as, as Americans. Like, we want to, like, uh, the saying, I want to pull myself up by my bootstraps. Have you ever thought about that? 
<laughs> like I'm going to lift up myself from my own bootstraps. My dad once had the idea that, that he wants a canoe with a magnet in front, so he never needs to paddle. <laughs> We're helpless. That's what, that's what it's like. We try to earn God's love. It's like we can't actually do it. We can't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. And we hate. I hate being helpless. Uh, I do lots of things just to not be helpless. Like when I was in college, I decided that I wanted to run a marathon. And some people do it for really good reasons. Like they, they care about health. They really enjoy running. Maybe they're doing it with another person. For me, I didn't want to be helpless. I was like, ah, can I do it? I need to prove to myself that I can do it. And so I'm going to run this thing. I'm going to go for it. Um, and these ideas of grandeur, even in my old age, like they, they still creep in, and I still try to not be helpless. Like I was talking to a guy who did a full Ironman. So that's marathon, two and a half miles swimming, 112 miles biking. And I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. Maybe I should try that. <laughs> I've never swam more than 200 meters or biked more than, like, I don't know, 15 miles in a day. Like, that's not happening. But, like, I just don't want to be helpless. And the other way this is, the other ways that helpless is translated, like the other, other possible translations, it is weak, sick, um, feeble, and then my favorite, impotent. For while we were still impotent at the right time, Christ died for the godly. This is who Jesus comes for. So that's one description. There's multiple descriptions. It also says in the same verse, Christ died for the ungodly. What is ungodly? It's the opposite of God. Who did Jesus die for? The opposite of who he is. So Jesus is, God is love. He's patient. He's kind. He's good. He's gracious. He's merciful. And then who am I? I'm, I'm ungodly. Apart from Christ, I'm unkind, impatient, evil, unmerciful, vindictive. Who did Jesus come for? This totally different person someone who does not deserve his love. Then it says that we were sinners. Who did Jesus come for? It says, but God proves his own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners. Uh, The easiest person to look at, like, if you're asking yourself, am I a sinner? Like, is this me? Uh, I think Romans 2.1 helps the most with this passage, uh, with this idea. Because uh, who holds, like, what standards do you hold for other people? Do you live up to those standards? So these aren't even God's standards. These are just like your, your own standards. We'd say no. Romans 2, it says no. Romans 2, 1. Therefore, everyone who judges is without excuse. For when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. Uh, I'm a hypocrite. The standard I hold other people to, I don't live up to myself. Who are we apart from Christ? Who did Jesus come for? Ungodly, sinners, helpless, impotent, and then probably the most convicting, who does Jesus love? His enemy. He loves his enemy. And this is the hardest one to swallow. While we were still enemies, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. We're not simply weak. We're not simply ungodly. We're not simply a sinner. We actually reject God. It's way beyond uh, how we like to think about ourselves. Uh, I think about somebody who is, who is who's like an enemy of the state, someone who goes against um, who's like secretly against one thing. So they present one thing, but then they're against it in another area. Um, I think that's a lot of ways that way that people treat God. Like, oh, God's great. We like God. But then in, in all the other areas of our life, we're like, mm, but I'm going to worship this thing. I'm going to secretly yearn for the world. Um, I say he's Lord and King, but actually he's not. Uh, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to treat him that way. And people have been that way. That's the description of what an enemy is like. One way we can think about an enemy 
And so God says, you're actually, you actually are his enemy. That's why, that's why James says that God opposes the proud. He actually stands against the proud. He fights against the proud. So I've been describing this, this. I spent a lot of time, I think, on this, just this idea. Who were we apart from Christ? Ungodly, sinning, enemy, rebel. And then what does this teach? God loves you. What? I'm his enemy. I'm rebellious. I don't live up to my own standards. No one would love me, especially not a perfect God of the universe. But this is what it says. God loves you. He says, I'm going to prove it to you. So how does God prove his love? Verse 8. God proves his own love for us that while we're still sinners, he died for us. Okay, so think about the void that we're talking about. Like how, how much, how, how, how like far apart we were from God when God makes this choice, when, when, um, when God gives, gives of himself. We can go back to the idea of an enemy. Who's the en- enemy of the United States? So if you're like a soldier in the United States, who would you say is your enemy? We're not really at war right now, but uh, there's some things happening around the world. So there's, you know, like the Houthi rebels, I think, out of Lebanon. They keep firing missiles at ships and at U.S. soldiers. So, so imagine you're on a ship, a U.S. ship, and, and there's these rebels. That's how far off we are. Or imagine you're World War I in trench warfare. And you're like in the trench and you're firing, you know, over and then they're firing back. That's how far apart we are from God. That we're, we're actually standing opposed completely to one another. Now, what's the craziest thing an enemy could do for you? Like, just walk away? That'd be pretty crazy. Um, what's the craziest thing that God could do that as we are his enemies? Because what, what God do, could do that would be right when you're at war, your desire is to smash the enemy, destroy the enemy. And God would be right if that's what he did. If God, if God said, all right, it's time for me to come back, my wrath is going to be poured out on all sinners, on all people who are my enemy, who are rebellious to me. And so there will be a day when God comes down. He hasn't done it yet because he's patient, not wanting any to be lost. He, wants, he desires all to be saved. So he hasn't done it yet, but a day is coming when this will happen, when he will judge the world for sin. What will that look like? Well, Revelation 19 gives us a terrifying picture. He says, I saw the heaven opened. So the heaven, the sky splits. And there was a white horse. Its rider called the faithful and true. And with justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood and his name was called the word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress in fierce anger of God the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe that is on, that is on his thigh, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. It's like a picture of God coming from the clouds with this massive army to do what? To judge the sin of the world, to bring the wrath of God. I do not want to be an enemy the day that day when that comes. And God will be right to judge the world like that. He is right. But it's not his desire. And so what does he do? He gives us the most improbable thing. He does the most improbable possible thing. And that before he comes, when he's going to come through the heavens, he actually, he's already condescending. He's already come down. When? He came down as Christ. Jesus is born, this little baby. Grows up perfect, little child of God. Never sins, never wrongs teaches the world about his goodness, teaches the world about who God is, and then those same people that should worship him, kill him. So he's killed. There's a great picture of what an enemy looks like. Um, and so Jesus, he dies. And so our, our great hope 
It's destroyed. And so, the only thing is, is it that big a deal that Jesus would die for people? Like, people die for other people all the time. So is it a big deal that Jesus dies? Uh, that's our pride speaking, because who does someone die for? Paul says it here. He says, someone might die for righteous. They might even dare die for a good person. But who dies for their enemy? That's what Jesus came to do. He comes not, not to just love those who love him, but to literally die for his enemy. I read this, this, this in the uh, devotional called The Daily. This is from a devotional called The Daily Bread. I thought it was helpful. It says, during the Revolutionary War, there was a faithful preacher, a faithful preacher of the gospel by the name of Peter Miller. He lived near a fellow who hated him, hated him intensely for his Christian life and testimony. In fact, this man violently opposed him and ridiculed his followers. One day, the unbeliever was found guilty of treason, sentenced to death. Hearing about this, Peter Miller, he set out on foot to intercede for the man's life before George Washington. The general lined up, I'm sorry, the general listened to the minister's earnest pleas, but told him he didn't feel he should pardon his friend. My friend? He's not my friend, answered Miller. In fact, he's my worst living enemy. What, said Washington? You've walked 60 miles to save the life of your enemy? That puts my judgment, uh, that, puts the, that puts in my judgment this matter in a different light. I will grant you your request. With pardon in hand, Miller, he hastened to the place where his neighbor was to be executed and arrived just as a prisoner was walking to the scaffold. When the traitor saw Miller, he exclaimed, Old Peter Miller, come to have his revenge by watching me hang. But he was astonished as he watched the minister step out of the crowd and produce a pardon that saved his life. Peter Miller, what, a, what an awesome dude. Goes on foot. I don't know where his horse was, but anyway, he goes on foot. And, <laughs> and he gets this pardon. And I think if I'm Peter Miller, I'm going to the hanging. I am the guy that he's like, old John Schreiner, come to watch me hang. I'd be like, yep. Yeah. Uh, it's crazy. It's great. And this is what Jesus is like to us. We are the enemy. But Jesus doesn't just walk 60 miles. He gives his life. He gives everything that he could possibly give that we would find life, that we would have hope. There's nothing greater that God can do for you. What else could he do? This is it. This is the greatest possible sacrifice and act of love. Uh, there's a hymn that, that sings of God's great love. So listen, listen to how it describes God's love. It says, it says, could we, or how we should think about God's love. It says, could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made were every stalk on earth a quill and everyone a scribe by trade to write the love of God above were to drain the ocean dry nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. It's like the ocean's full and just ink. We're just going to take these, these things and everyone's going to take their chance writing about the love of God. It says there's not enough room in the sky. His love is so good for us, so amazing and almost, almost unbelievable. Like it, it's hard to even internalize it. So this is important to understand. Do we all receive the love of God? Like I'm describing this love that God gives us. Does everyone receive that love? Does everyone? No, we don't. So Romans chapter 4, it's, it's, it's explained that no, it's those who put their hope in Christ, those who understand that what Jesus does on the cross is he says, I'm going to take your sin and I'm going to give you my righteousness. And so the reason we're justified is as we believe that Jesus died for our sin, he took the punishment we should have taken and he offers us back his righteousness. So Romans 4, 5, it says, but to the one who does not work, 
but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Well, we just heard that we're the ungodly. But believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is credited to him for righteousness. So who gets to experience this great love of God in this way? It's those who put their faith in Christ. This is the good news. This is the gospel message we hear. And so God proves it at the cross. It's a matter of faith. And when we put our faith in Christ, then what happens? We have security. This is the second point, the security of God's love. Verse 8. God proves his own love that, that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through his death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And one reason that, that security of God's love is hard for us to understand is that you've probably had people that have abandoned you. You probably have people that you, that you loved or loved you that like you're not close anymore, that you feel abandoned by. And so we can be concerned, like, God's going to leave me like that. God's going to separate, and, and, and so there's, there can be an insecurity in us because of the fickleness of our love. But that's not how God loves. That's not how we want to view God or we should view God. He's not at any moment going to say, you're my enemy again. No. Um, and so when, you, when you're feeling guilty, like, ah, I, I feel my pride, you know, I feel, I, I feel all these things that are alienating me from God. I deserve to be punished. You won't be because it doesn't depend on you. It doesn't depend on your goodness. Um, listen to this verse. It says, since, uh, it says, since we have now been justified by his blood. What was the cost? It was the blood of Christ. When did it happen? When is it, when is it beneficial for you? Now. Later, like, like one day God will like see it and then he'll forgive me, but right now I should feel guilty. It's like, no, now you've been justified by his blood. And how much trouble would we be in if, if it was like, I put my faith in Christ and then, and God like totally makes me clean, but then I have to live up and be good enough from that point forward. Like, yeah, he did save me, but like, and he does love me and I am pure, but now I have to be good enough. Oh, we'd be in big trouble. I would be in big trouble. See, because it depends on the love of God. It doesn't depend on, on, on me. I'm fickle. This is how theologian Charles Hodge explained it. He said, if, if he loved God, if he loved us, I'm sorry, if he loved us because we loved him, he would love us only as long as we loved him and on that condition. And then our salvation would depend on the constancy of our treacherous hearts. But as God loved us as sinners, as Christ died for us as ungodly, our salvation depends not on our loveliness, but on the constancy of the love of God. That's so awesome. We based on God's love. It's not on my love, my fickle love. It's actually on God's love. We are saved by the love of God, by the blood of Christ. We don't ever want to be the basis for our own salvation. And so our security is in God's love. It's in the work of Christ. So think about what is the implication of justification? You can be secure because when God looks at you, there's nothing for him to condemn. Like, it's already taken care of. You're already justified. It's already been paid for. So he's not looking. It's not like God's looking like, oh, I got another one. You know, like, yeah, he did it again. Oh, there she goes. It's like, no, there's nothing, there's nothing to condemn. You are justified by the blood of Christ. And so there's an aspect of justification that's awesome. But then he says, it's not just that, but, but actually, I also reconcile you. There's, there's another aspect to this. We're secure in God's love because we're reconciled to God. 
He uses a different word. How much more then, verse 9, since we have now been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? It's a little bit confusing to me, but what he, here's what he's trying to say. This is like a, a lesser to more argument. He's saying, uh, he's saying if, if I can justify my enemy, if I can, if I can save with my death... If it'll cost me my life, but I save my enemy, how much more can I take that person to heaven with me? Can I glorify this person? How much more, once this person is justified, can I then be reconciled with my life? That they'd be saved from the day of wrath. So he's saying, this was the hard thing. The hard thing was my son giving his life. This next, next thing, it's not so difficult to reconcile, to, be, to have a relationship restored. So let's go back to the original question in the section. How do we know... God will not leave us. How can we rest securely in his love? Well, your past sin, your present sin, and your future sin, it's all forgiven. This is the effect of the cross. Your past sin, your present sin, and even what's going to happen in the future, it's all forgiven. And you, you'll see this as you look closely at the wording in this passage. So just look at the tenses, uh, like describing when these things happen. So you've now been justified by his blood, verse 9. Uh, again in verse 9, how much more will be saved from the day of wrath. So when the day of wrath comes, when God's judgment, when the, throne, when the heavens are torn open, he says, you'll be saved. So it's now, it's in the future. It says we were reconciled to God. You were, if you've been saved, it's been in the past, you were reconciled. So it's in the past, it's now, it's in the future. And then it doubles down on all these things. Having been reconciled, we will be saved. Having now received reconciliation. So you've now been justified, but you've now been reconciled too. He transforms you, and it's immediate, and it's permanent. And uh, this is so helpful because, because your inner voice might be telling you other things. Satan might be whispering, remember that lie? Uh, remember, remember that thing that no one else knows about? You're going back to that thing. Oh, what about that other thing that, that no one else knows about? What, what, what about the thing that everybody knows about? How could, you, how could you even go to church and show your face, you wicked, ugly sinner, to which you can say, I've been justified and reconciled. God loves me still. None of that changes when I sin. None of that is taken away. We don't need to be afraid because we've been saved. God's love is greater. So listen to how Paul talks about this in Romans 8. This is verse 35 and 37 to 39. He says, Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? No. And all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. What can separate us? Nothing. Put your faith in Christ, your hope in Christ, nothing can take that away. And then the last aspect of this that, that, that we need to see, how, why are we secure? Because we become a friend of God. God's love is secure. And the reason I say friend is because of the word reconciliation. Think about what does it mean to be reconciled to someone else? Um, it, could be, it could potentially be an accounting term, but also it, it, it's like I had a fight and I needed to reconcile. Okay, what did that look like? Uh, we were united. Like the thing got put behind us and we, were, we became one again in a sense. Or we, we were, we were, our friendship was restored. We go from being an enemy of God 
to a reconciled friend of God. The relationship is restored. And so salvation, I like to think of salvation usually in terms of not being punished. But salvation is more than not being punished. It's being reconciled to God. It's, it's having Jesus as a friend. It's walking with him. It's talking with him. So he's there with you with times of joy. He's there with you in times of trouble. He's your friend. How do you think about Jesus? Do you think about him that way, like, like friends do? Do you want to spend time with him? He wants to. He wants you. Because we are made friends with God through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. So what, is, what should we do with all these things? What's the conclusion? Paul says, here's the conclusion. Uh, rejoice in God. What should we do? Rejoice in God. Uh, so th- this passage, we, we read it in, in the CSB, the translation of the CSB, um, in which it says, and not only that, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But that word boast, in, in other translations, it can be translated glory. So we, we glory in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, but the ESV says we rejoice. What should we do? Not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've received reconciliation. We celebrate. We get pumped. We're overjoyed because we've been set free from the penalty of sin and death. We can walk with our God. We rejoice in Jesus Christ. John Stott, he says, this is what our response should be. He says, we should, he's saying Christians, we should be the most positive people in the world. We cannot mooch around, around the place with dropping hangdog expression. We cannot drag our way through life moaning and groaning. We cannot always look on the dark side of everything as negative prophets of doom. Now we exalt in God. Then every part of our life becomes suffused with glory. Christian worship becomes a joyful celebration of God and Christian living a joyful service of God. So come, let us exalt in God together. What should we do? We rejoice in God. This goes back even to that Romans 5.5. 5. The more we understand and believe that what Jesus did was sufficient, that effect in us is that we understand the love of God pouring into our heart. Oh yeah, this is who God is. This is who I was, but this is who I am now. And God's love, it pours into us. And how do I respond to that? I'm pumped. <laughs> you know? uh, I'm excited. I'm thankful. And we don't need to fake it. It's not like something bad happens and you're like, oh, I got Romans, I got to rejoice in Jesus again. It's like, no, no, you want to. He's done it. And we get to. It's a privilege to rejoice Um, because of his great love towards us. Uh, Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your great love, a love that is difficult to understand and difficult to put into words. Father, I pray that that for all people here who, who, who maybe are trying to figure this out, Lord, I pray that you'd help them take the step forward and say, I need you. I see that I'm a sinner, but I see that you love me, and they'd repent of their sin, they'd put their hope in Christ. I pray for every Christian here that they would walk in confidence because they have your spirit, that they'd walk restored, that they wouldn't let their past dictate their future. I pray that, that we, we wouldn't have low self-esteem, but our, our esteem would come from you. We'd know who we are as children of God. We walk with confidence before you and, and in this world. We need your help to do that, Lord. Um, yeah, fill us with your spirit. Help us to walk in your spirit today. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.